Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kaligan. We have a tremendous show for you this week, our 44th episode. We are coming at you here in the middle of September 2023. Uh, Putin's meeting with Kim Jong-un. Shoigu is responding to strikes in Crimea. Uh, we're getting interviews with potential future czars. Armenia and Azerbaijan are about to go to war. We're recording this, hoping that by the time you're listening to this, the major invasion hasn't happened and what everything we're going to say is irrelevant. But even if that does happen, it won't be irrelevant because I have a feeling we're going to be pretty spot on. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad. Exciting episode. Lots to speak about. And it does kind of you know flow very smoothly from last week's episode into this one. And, you know, some new events, I think, occurring around the world. Definitely we'll be touching on the Balkans, Yugoslavia. Again, some fresh news out of Africa and yeah, just developments in Europe. Again, uh, we're moving, you know, unironically and not to make it a cliche, but uh, some of the statements from Shoigu and some of the actions by the Ukraine have seemingly inching us towards like a third world war conflict or at least like you know, attempting to agitate the Russian side to the point where Russia would need to retaliate with some sort of um, with some with a strike we haven't seen before, and so we'll definitely be talking about all of that. And speaking of strikes, um, I think it's worth starting with the the great meeting of the the great meeting of our glorious leaders in uh, of Eurasia, which is uh, Kim Jong Un and Vladimir Putin, which occurred in the east and at Vladivostok earlier this week. Yeah, we're gonna hop right into that, and it's always funny when these things go on with. Kim Jong-un, you know, Russia and China, they're like the only countries that like treat him like a normal person. And so it's kind of jarring to see the like Kim Jong-un, you know, with the normal photo shoots at the sitting in the chairs like a like the prime minister of the UK would when he visits Washington DC or something, you know, in, in any kind of Russian setting. I mean, we know he was even there for when Putin accepted Donetsk and Luhansk into the Russian Federation. So he's quite familiar with the getting a warm welcome in Russia. So it's always interesting to see. Of course, we don't know exactly what Putin and Kim discussed, but it does, rumors are flowing around that they could be securing millions and millions of shells because North Korea has some of the highest output of ammunition and uh, just general weapons uh, production just per capita of any country, especially compared to any individual Western country. So, I mean, we always hear from the West that, well, you know, maybe the Russians are doing okay, and they've admitted the Ukrainian counteroffensive is failing, but they are running out of ammo just like everybody else. But, well, if, if what we think is going to happen right now with Kim Jong-un is, is happening, I don't think that's going to be a problem for much longer. And there's even potential for much greater, you know, collaboration beyond just ammunition sharing. Dimitri, what are you, what are you thinking could be, could be in the works? Yeah, I think the subject of ammunition is definitely a, a hot topic and most people really don't understand like don't understand. And I myself was not quite clear until the SMO exactly how much ammunition modern warfare would use up per day and until Prigozhin released those videos where he claimed at Bakhmut the Russian side would shoot up to ten thousand, maybe more shells in one day. Like that's those are staggering numbers over in one particular territory over Bakhmut and Solidar in the span of twenty four hours. That's insane. And so when we're speaking about millions and hundreds of thousands of shells, that's exactly what the Russian side needs at the moment, because, of course, at the moment, it's uh, it's primarily uh, artillery-based warfare. What we're seeing is, um, you know, two sides shooting, lobbing uh, long-range um, artillery shells at one another. And, of course, the tank warfare is also present, but that's uh, kind of minimized. In fact, you may not even see uh, a battle between tanks if you're on the front lines sitting in the trenches, either on the Ukrainian or the Russian side. But nevertheless, 
North Korea has been militarized against the South, and they've had this armistice for a very long time now, what close to closing in on 70 years. So, of course, North Korea has produced and probably amassed so many shells that are just lying there in storage. And I'm not sure if there are expiry dates on these things, but definitely if this if this is what Russia wishes to acquire, I think it would be a great idea to purchase them. And, you know, North Korea isn't the richest country around. So, frankly, you could even have uh, trades for various things. Again, we've discussed the fact that uh, North Korean laborers were actually, they were organized, remember last year in September, uh, when Kim Jong-un first, I think it was... Uh, no, it was actually um, early in 2022 when Kim Jong-un first visited Russia since the SMO. There were these organized laborers who would come to Donetsk and Lugansk to actually rebuild it. So there were collaborations in the past of actually bringing in military uh, military personnel from North Korea to help rebuild the SMO zone, as you may call it. So in fact, this this discussion couldn't have, could have been, you know, as we said, it's a speculation about what they spoke about, but it could have been about something such as simple, um, well, we need more police officers in the SMO zone, or we need more laborers, we need more blue collar workers to rebuild, you know, cities such as Mariupol or Donetsk, Lugansk, or even, uh, you know, to start building trenches or work on some of these dry docks, which, you know, they, they that are, you know, need, need rebuilding in Crimea. So it could be something as simple as that or something as complex as, you know, let's just, it gets a little bit crazy, but North Korean mercenaries and North Korean, like, military personnel on the ground, boots on the ground in in Ukraine. Because, um, you know, as mentioned on the Duran, in Duran show, there is nothing the West can actually do to respond to, you know, North Korean boots on the ground in the SMO zone. There is no escalation point from here. North Korea is already sanctioned to all hell. They are considered even more of, uh, I guess you can call it international globalist, uh, global rejects than Russia than Russia is, technically speaking. So there's really nothing they can do to punish North Korea for even sending troops to assist Russia, the Russian Federation. And Russia could really give a lot to North Korea for something like that. So I think... I think the potential for for collaboration is very broad here. It's just um, it comes down to exactly what Putin and Kim Jong Un spoke about, and it could be something as little and as insignificant as East Asian politics, right? Because we do know Kim Jong Un has been missile testing over Okinawa, over Japan, and really agitating the western um, western side of the hemisphere, the Pacific Ocean, really kind of harassing, I guess, uh, American influenced bases over there. Uh, so. It could be something as simple as wartime diplomacy that they spoke about, frankly. And they it did occur in Vladivostok. So, you know, Putin, maybe perhaps the fact that Putin traveled across all of Russia to meet Kim Jong-un does show that maybe Putin was the one asking, right? He was like, okay, look, Kim, you don't have to travel 2,000, 3,000 kilometers to meet me. I'll come to you because I'm the one actually with the proposition here. And you just have to kind of lend me a hand here. I think for Putin, it's important that, you know, I think we, we, all, we agreed on this show that he waited too long to even go to... Uh, Donbass and some of these areas at this point, you know, he knows he has to make his presence known across the whole span of Russia. I mean, was it was it at the beginning of the SMO or before the SMO started? There was that kind of disruption out in the Far East when that like supposed mayor, I guess, was going against Putin from the right. There's that whole thing out there. So he's trying to make sure that he, you know, is a pan-Russian leader, geographically speaking. But when it comes to North Korea and Russia, I think you're totally right. And I agree with the Duran guys that the West isn't really a factor in that decision. I think it's entirely China. I think Kim feels emboldened and has been kind of allowed to push the limits with the missile tests and with that kind of stuff because of China, because of the U.S.'s increased pressure on Taiwan with the Pelosi visits and Biden saying, I guess now we're going to defend Taiwan militarily despite openly holding to the one China policy. You know, just check the U.S. embassy website. We hold to the one China policy. We believe Taiwan is part of China. But I think North Korea has given a lot of free reign to act in that part of the Pacific Ocean because China wants, you know, 
to counter the U.S. You know, China is doing their own things and surrounding Taiwan, and they're you know shutting down, forcing the Taipei Airport to shut down flights for hours due to missile tests and whatnot and defense exercises. So, you know, they're putting the pressure on there. But in general, I think China is probably the only one holding back a full-on, you know, North Korean presence within the special military operation because, you know, they know that North Korea, while you know Russia's now might be its closest ally of the perception and still understanding is that China is their closest ally, it's their longest border and all that. So it's, they don't want to necessarily get dragged into something by proxy due to the North Koreans being involved. But, you know, that may change. Maybe the Chinese see that as, as something that could develop positively. We don't really know. But in general, we know the Chinese are in general looking towards peace and trying to, trying to negotiate that as they've, you know, been successful so far in the world of their they're dipping their toe into international relations with Iran and, and Saudi Arabia. But, and and it, it doesn't help the West if they want to keep China in that peaceful mindset. It doesn't help when they do these insane attacks on Crimea, which I want to get your, I want to get your take on, Dimitri. Yeah, that's right. I think the, uh, th- that strike on Crimea recently really sparked off a lot of alarm bells, I think, not, not just in, people, you know, in, in minds of people who have been following geopolitics, but also because Crimea was, for a re- really long time, one of the official red lines that both Shoigu and Putin have mentioned that, look, Crimea is not technically a war zone. The Kerch Bridge, of course, which has been struck multiple times for various terrorist acts and Ukrainian drones, yes, that's, that's been quite bad. But now, we have an official, you know, storm shadow strike, which the Ukrainians have claimed. Yeah, it is a storm shadow missile, by the way, which of course is uh, made in the UK. It's a British long-range missile could could be shot from a from a fighter plane over you know, 150 kilometers away. So essentially, very long range. The Russians really, unless they have like perfectly positioned um, air defenses, they can't really stop it. In fact, so storm shadows are very fast, very accurate as well, which makes them incredibly dangerous. And um, and basically, Sevastopol had a dry dock. They were fixing two Russian. Um, military ships and uh, you know the storm shadow missile hit right right on target and the two ships were damaged. Um, several civilians were hurt. I'm not sure if there were any actual losses. And of course, by civilians we mean like literal non-military laborers who are actually working on the dry dock ships. And for all the, for, for those of you not aware or maybe not familiar, dry docking is when the ship is actually lifted out of the out of the sea or out of the water and essentially fi- fixed on that the hull is being worked on. So it's you know this business this has been done since uh, ancient times when ancient Greeks would like roll up their ships uh, out of the water so dry docking is very common and that's of course when the ship is most vulnerable when you know the entire hull is exposed and that's when the storm shadow missile actually hit its target so you know we do recall Shoigu actually uh, his response was and we recall his uh, you know previous response in June 2023 where he openly says that look if if there are any strikes upon Crimea, and this is of course the Minister of Defense of the Russian Federation, Sergei Shoigu, saying this, not some level, you know, not some communist or some uh, irrelevant liberal politician in Russia who wants to gain clout in the parliament, but Shoigu just openly states, look, if there are any strikes on Crimea, where um, we're going to be escalating the matter, and it will involve the United States and the UK. I believe that one, pretty much paraphrasing what he said, but that was the message back in June, and it seems that he has restated that now. And the storm shadow missile has has occurred, right? So the strike has has taken place. It's been confirmed. Ukraine has taken complete um, custody over the strike. So they've they've you know claimed that yeah, it's, it's it was us. By the way, the UK has surprisingly kept silent. So and it does remind me in a way. It, it is very um 
again, it's uh, reminiscent. Sadgard actually had a m m mentioned this. Uh, it was very reminiscent of the strikes that, the, say, the United Kingdom had over, say, Nazi Germany, where they would have these pinpoint strikes across the Nazi German docks over the course of World War II, right? Being kind of estranged on their little island of, of, of Albion for so long and really not being involved in... Uh, uh, you know, after 1941, not too intensely besides Normandy and those other invasions. But the, the analogy there is that the UK and the UK is, of course, assisting Ukraine in a very disconnected sense. But still, these Storm Shadow missiles, they are, you know, they are of their production. So uh, to what extent is Russia going to involve the UK? Is there Will, will there be any responses? And this comes in the wake of, of course, Putin's uh, press conference interview again, where, you know, he he kind of openly uh, openly says that, well, look, who actually controls UK foreign or foreign intelligence? Could it be the CIA? And he makes these strange, again, in a very Putin-like sense, these allusions to like, well, it, does the West actually control its own foreign policy? Or maybe is Europe under the influence of America? Or is America under the influence of Europe? Which is very, very well and good. But now that the red lines have been crossed, I'm just wondering what Russia will do next. I think I'll just, I'll just be frank about it. We're either going to see in the next few weeks, a very, we're going to have to see at least a very dramatic response some kind of dramatic escalation or hate to say it there's uh you know there's there's, there's weakness afoot you know like if you're just going to let these if you're just going to let these red lines get crossed and these things happen and then just release more and more strongly worded statements eventually you know the strongly worded statements aren't even going to seem particularly strongly worded it's just going to seem like it's just going to seem like weakness and of course I mean, I mean, there's all sorts of things you could do to get back at the United Kingdom in this regard. And I mean, these days the UK is too busy being based banning American pit bulls. But the uh, if, while they're distracted doing that, I think hopefully you know you could you could do all sorts of things through you know their influence in places like Poland or uh, their influence in places like the Balkans and uh, or their influence you know in places like the Middle East. Like these are all like with France as well. We know the Prigozhin thing. We've kind of fingered France on that. It seems that the Russians are. It seems the Russians are willing to go against France, which, frankly, if we're looking at which individual states Russians should be going up against, I would rather you be going against the UK and America and courting France and Germany. But it seems that, you know, in many ways, Russia, you know, you, you work with what you can get and France, you know, they're weak in Africa. So Russia's going to going to take from them. Right. It's kind of there. I, I say you take what you can get, not to disparage Russia, more to disparage France in that regard. But it does seem that. Unfortunately, Russia isn't able to play it. Like, same with the Armenia-Azerbaijan situation, which we're going to get to in a little bit later on the show. Russia isn't able to... Russia doesn't have the luxury of playing with its allies, like with its favorite people, you know. It, Armenia betrayed them. You know, all, all these other characters have, you know, not played their part properly. You know, Macron, you know, not that France was their friend, but, you know, Macron, despite wanting a multipolar, independent... EU, he he sees the only way to secure that is by being even more anti-Russian somehow. So yeah, I mean, there's going to have to be some kind of response. I mean, I obviously don't want any kind. I mean, I'm an Anglo myself. I don't want any kind of aggression on the on the Isles. But we know that with Scotland, you know, I think Russia needs to put the pedal to the metal and get Scotland independent and break up the United Kingdom or something, or else these people aren't going to take you seriously. Yeah, that's right. I think there's plenty of stuff that can be done in terms of like soft policy and just soft influence, which Russia, frankly, has has had a weak take on even in its neighboring Ukraine. Right. How how influential has Russia been since, you know, even before 2014 in Ukraine in terms of influencing its neighbor? Now, of course, uh, those matters have been escalated in terms of, uh, you know, 
promotion of uh, foreign political uh, ties to African countries, like you mentioned, France, and you know that does uh, that does connect to the fact that Suravikin has been recently saying again. Not somewhere in the Commonwealth of Independent States, right? Where, where his position has been, you know, temporarily moved to, it seems. But he has been spotted in Algeria, which I think is is pretty it's a pretty strong statement, considering Algeria has taken a really neutral stance on the whole ECOWAS uh, Niger situation. So it does speak to the fact that the Russians are still very heavily involved in Africa, and uh, the sort of the death of the Wagner leadership is alongside Prigozhin doesn't really stifle any of those efforts. And of course, now we know officially Yevkurov has been visiting Libya for the past three weeks. Um, you know, again, we don't know what these Russian generals, the, the Yevkurov, of course, was a deputy of minister, deputy defense minister of Russia. We don't know what these generals are speaking about to the local um, Muslim North African leadership. You know, again, it's similar to Putin and Kim Jong Un. Like the, of course, the the private conversations are not recorded. Even say some of the agreements or those those documents which are signed between the two between these various leaders, they're not exactly made public, but we do understand even, say, Suravikin, actually, the General Armageddon showing up in Algeria will, in fact, trigger trigger responses in the West. You know, there'll be articles written up, there'll be, uh, you know, people will have to somehow make make an analytical statement on that particular, you know, his, his particular presence there. Like, what will this mean for Algeria? And you've mentioned uh, in the past, like, Algeria has been one of the one of the more strongly Muslim countries, like they do have a very particular foreign political stance, and as well as domestically, they are you know seemingly conservative from a Muslim perspective, and it, it ties into the fact that Suravikin is seen in Algeria visiting a, um, one of their local mosques as well. So him, you know, that was kind of a place of diplomacy where you know friends could speak in private, and it, it's it's just the raising tensions for the West and raising tensions for the EU. Again, Russia is not leaving Africa, and nor nor should it, frankly. Think about it this way: if NATO is not leaving the Caucasus and not leaving Central Asia, continuing to have a presence all around the former Commonwealth of Independent States. So, I mean, not former, but you know, I guess the former Soviet Union, and even in the Balkans, Russia should, in in fact, push itself into I guess spheres of Western influence, which is would be North Africa, and you know, make a presence there, and in fact. Uh, all of these agreements, these are speaking to various leaders of the Muslim and I guess African African leaders in the area. It does, it's 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 there's a mutual gain to be had there. So the Africans and the Muslims do have things that they can pick up from Russia, and Russia could have, um, you know, what uh, could obtain things from them too. So, in, in fact, it's not just a one-sided relationship there, and it isn't just you know Russia abusing abusing African or Muslim uh, third world countries. No, it's simply uh, Russia has something to give and the Muslims have something to return. Well, it's important to remember Algeria is one, possibly the number one geopolitical, if there's one country that aligns itself against Israel, it's Algeria. And Algeria also rejected France's request to basically use their airspace to run operations uh, on Niger, which Algeria shares a huge border with Niger. And of course, Morocco, who used to kind of be buddy-buddy with not not buddy buddy, but they used to be kind of of one mind on foreign policy regarding the Middle East and Israel with Algeria. They basically totally reproached with the West. They basically got their Western Sahara for you know for those of you that looked at a map that was made a few years ago. Western Sahara was always this independent territory disputed. It's now been totally given to Morocco, and Morocco allows France had allowed France to run you know anti-Niger junta operations through its airspace, despite not even sharing a border with. Niger. And the whole ECOWAS thing is, you know, still still very much in flux. Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger have taken very dramatic steps against all French power blocks, whether it's the embassy itself or any kind of lingering troops within their countries. Those have all been expelled or threatened to be, you know, kicked out by force. And it does seem that, you know, there were rumors that when Suravikin, you know, got moved to his, you know, kind of weird CIS 
air defense post that maybe it's a it's kind of a holding position for him to become a the head of some new and improved you know totally incorporated Wagner PMC and you know maybe maybe that's maybe that's on the horizon and we're we're waiting for it but it does seem that Africa the you know the Russians had a few cards out and the African part of their you know their, their African hand they were playing seems to have come back well so it would make sense that they're going to keep doubling down but that spreads across Sudan. All that stuff is still going on. People, you know, people in the West. It's not as exciting of a news cycle to just cover the random updates of, you know, African territorial inter-junta conflicts. But those things are always dynamic and changing every day. But unless you have anything else you want to say about North Korea, Surovikin, Shoigu, and the Ukraine situation, we want to get into the church persecutions. Yeah, the only thing I have to say about North Korea is that Russia did did in fact show show a very respectful hand so if the agreement between north korea and russia does develop into something extremely pro-russian if you know we do see north korean troops on the ground don't be surprised frankly i you know the fact that shoigu himself and mind you north korea is a very militarized society so the fact that shoigu the minister of defense not lavrov not some uh not like an anthony blinken type character goes over to north korea the north koreans will take it take it up as a sign of respect like look you have your i guess your top your, your top guy your top warlord <laughs> Shoigu, uh actually visiting us and and of course he was he was there for the parade for the war anniversary for, for the ending of so the victory of the uh, north korean war over the over the south and that was a big deal in July, and that's probably when they could have planned this uh, meeting between Putin and uh, Kim Jong Un, which I guess the outcome of which we'll find out soon. So I think that was the big precursor. Um, whether or not you know we'll come up with this, will come up with anything. I guess we'll see. And you know, and, and you mentioned how America kind of enabled all this, especially under the Biden administration, which he, under the Trump's administration, when Trump would meet with Kim Jong Un, and there was actually some closure there. This this wouldn't have been possible, right? Or at least this uh, sort of buddy buddy friendship type thing between North Korea and Russia would not have been as explicit and as painful for the United States and even the Western nations around the world. So I think the Biden administration is explicitly to blame. And I mean, McDonald's CEO of McDonald's diplomacy between Anthony Blinken and some of the Ukrainian. I mean, Anthony Blinken traveling to China, t- telling them that look, uh, we always uh, considered Taiwan to be a part of, you know, a, a part of China historically, and it's just like. So on one side, Biden uh, agitates China and shows weakness. On the other hand, you have Anthony Blinken uh, completely supporting them. It's just, it's a very weak position. The entire Biden administration has failed American foreign policy very, very drastically, both in Europe and in Asia. So well, let's not be surprised that North Korea finally has, I guess, uh, has the gonads in order to right, uh, directly travel to Russia and now possibly even assist them in a military sense, which which is absolutely, uh, you know, it would it would seem completely insane five years ago, but now it's now that's the reality we live in. So, I think with that being said, uh, we'll have to wait until next week until we actually get some news regarding this. But yeah, definitely a hot subject. Yeah, I mean Kim Jong Un, he's always you know he's always a character. The news likes to cover him. He they think he looks funny, so they like taking pictures of him. But you know, I think he's a uh, I, I respect him. You know, if he wants to come on the show, we'll we'll have him on. I'll, I know Koreans, we can make it we can make it work, right? But you, you talked about Putin and all of that. We, I want to briefly mention before you talk about the persecutions, Putin. You know, very explicitly, you know, he doesn't get too explicit about American politics too often, but he very explicitly, you know, called out the U.S. for their political persecution of Trump and said it. For him, it's a good thing that it just lays bare the hypocrisy of the West and that they have no right to claim, you know, that countries they don't like happen to be using their rhetoric. They're treading on the rule of law, you know, the justice system there isn't fair, it's anti-democratic, you know, all the all the nonsense, you know, NGO, CIA talking points you hear about regime change. You know, he, he was sending the persecution of Trump just totally lays bare the hypocrisy of the U.S. and that they're just as oligarchic of a state as anywhere else, if not way worse, you know, jailing the former leader of the free world. But yeah, with all of that, 
Ukraine, a very not free country, continues to continues to crack down on its Orthodox Christians. Yeah, like the the most dramatic news recently has been the, the local Kiev authorities and I guess the, the Ministry of Culture has announced that the the Church of the Tibes and the Monastery of the Tibes, which is a very small monastery, mind you, only has between eight and eleven monks living there. So very small monastery, a few structures, um, some living quarters, a, a mess hall. But essentially, the Church of the Tibes is a very small chapel. It looks like a bit of a, like a turtle shell. Uh, um, the turtle shell sort of church, and it wouldn't have been significant if not for a major miracle which occurred in 2006. Mind you, this church was built in the 1990s and blessed, actually consecrated in 2006 for the first time by um, the previous metropolitan, not Anufri, his predecessor, Vladimir of Kiev. So Vladimir blessed the church, and it was actually blessed on Easter. So it was blessed um, uh, on that Easter weekend. And there was an evening service, uh, of course, you know, the Holy Week right after Easter. As you all know, the, the altar doors are, are open in the church. And this is where, this is what the significance of this church. I'll kind of explain it real quick. In 2006, the Holy Week of Easter, the, ch the church, the, the altar doors were all open. And people were standing in church preparing for the evening services. This is around 5, five o'clock in the afternoon. The priest was actually outside of the church and suddenly... There was a big Theotokos icon standing in the middle. Not significant. In fact, the Theotokos icon was written by an American iconographer from California in 1998. So it's not an ancient icon. It's 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 a copy of the um, of Theotokos Vladimir from you know from Russia. But essentially, it was just an American icon which was later imported into Ukraine. A pretty big icon, nevertheless. But it was standing in the middle of the church, and suddenly, the people waiting for the service to begin would they saw a figure dressed in all white in a massive uh, like white cloak glowing, walking into the church through the front doors. And it was the Theotokos, the Mary Mother of God. And the priest was outside. He didn't, he didn't see all this, but there was at least 30 people in the church actually standing there waiting for the service to begin. And the Theotokos walked down the, down the middle through the, uh, through the western doors, down the middle towards the icon, then looked down, inspected the icon very carefully, and walked around the icon through the, through the uh, royal doors, and lifted her arms up and uh, lifted her arms up in prayer, similar to what the priest does during the liturgy, and be began to pray. And suddenly, as she lifted her arms up, everyone in the church they felt what Saint Paisios described as when you do feel the presence of grace, you know, for the first time, you, you witness a miracle, you feel completely broken by. It. Everyone fell down, and they described that as just having they were completely cru uh, not crushed, but like they they were so there was so much humility. Everyone just started. Everyone fell down on the ground. When they got up, everyone kind of fell down in frustration. When they got up, the Theotokos was gone and no one really saw her leave. So, And she, they, they, they would describe it as if she was a real person and like she, she had the presence of an actual real person, not like a ghost or an apparition of sorts, but she was there, glowing white cloak, uh, walked into the church. Yeah, it's just an amazing miracle. This is 2006 in Kiev. So this is like, as we have, you know, people going into cinemas watching like Lord of the Rings and stuff, right? <laughs> like 2006, think about it. It's like a very, like, it was just like yesterday, people had mobile phones and stuff. So this is a regular Holy Week. And this is the first week after the church was consecrated and why this matters, right? And of course, this icon later began, began to perform miracles. You know, there was even miracles, uh, lots of miracles associated with healing. So this particular icon that the Theotokos essentially blessed now is is the main icon of this church it's called the um it's the church of the tibes but the reason it's called the church of the tibes anyway is because saint vladimir of kiev allegedly built a massive cathedral on the spot out of his own personal essentially it's like a tithe he paid per, he paid for it personally out of his uh, personal purse when he was baptized a thousand years ago in russian history but nevertheless this church that the Theotokos appeared in is what the Zelensky government is trying to deconstruct right now because they're saying, well, this little turtle shell church, it's it was a temporary structure to begin with. In ancient times, you know, Vladimir of Kiev, the Ukrainian prince, he built a massive cathedral on this, but we should deconstruct it and rebuild the massive cathedral. 
which was standing here before the Mongol horde invaded. So, which is true, but you can see the Ministry of Culture of Ukraine using this recent miracle, just attacking it completely, attacking the, or of course, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, attacking the fact that, well, this church in a way, like no one has heard of a miracle of this of this level occur, like recently, at least in, in Kiev, Ukraine. And now the Ministry of Culture wants to deconstruct this little church and essentially dispel the entire monastery. It doesn't help with the fact that the monks are being accused of being pro-Russian as well. So the Ukrainian Ministry of Culture and uh, just the authorities of Kiev are completely encroaching on just, uh, I mean, we've, we've seen them encroach on, uh, you know, relics, things of that nature. Like, in fact, they've, in the lower caves of the Kiev Pechersk Lavra Monastery, which is next door to this monastery, they've announced that in order to actually enter the, into the lower caves, you now need to pay like a tourist fee, which is between 20 and 40 American dollars. And actually to venerate the relics of the hundreds of saints buried beneath the, the Kiev Pechersk Monastery, you do need to now pay a fee. To the Ukrainian government, like this is crazy, uh, completely absurd. Not that the Ukrainian people, I'm sure they can afford it. It's simply just that the hubris of actually, um, you know, the the, the usurious sort of inclinations there. I think we can all appreciate the level of, you know, the, the, how they're making it difficult for people, you know, local Ukrainians, local people of Kiev who, to actually participate in Orthodox worship and veneration. Quite degenerate. So that was probably the biggest story recently. Now the church is still standing today, and maybe it'll be protected, but. We we hope that at least um you know if the it's it's just really sad considering a miracle occurred not really long ago so persecution has of course continued and does continue I think that the other big story of course was Bishop Theodosius of Cher of the city of Cherkasy in the Cherkasy Oblast and we're not going to leave Cherkasy Oblast too soon because there's another big event happening in the city of Uman as well but the the Bishop of Cherkasy is actually on house arrest officially the Ukrainian government has said that he's not allowed to serve any liturgies or attend any services he's being investigated for his anti-Ukrainian, anti-state agitation, right? So this is in the city of Cherkasy in Western Ukraine. And in that same obelisk, literally next door, a massive pilgrimage is taking place. So I think it's a very, I think we should definitely break down what's happening in that particular region. I was going to say, I mean, as these churches are being persecuted that have, you know, miracles on them as bishops are being prevented from adequately selling. I mean, we just, on the new calendar, we just celebrated the feast of the exaltation of the cross that'll be coming up on the old calendar where they are in, well, the schismatics, of course, they're already on the new calendar, so they've probably already pretended to celebrate, and now the the canonical church will have to celebrate these feasts, and many of these hierarchs won't be able to. But unlike, you know, the persecuted Christians, other groups of people are roaming the streets of Ukraine in cities like Uman and the Cherkasy region and these things, and these are, I mean, people may have seen these are Hasidic Jews celebrating uh, certain, actually I need to, I'll look up the uh, specific details really quick, but they were flying into Chisinau in Moldova, and because none of these flights were able to come from Israel to Ukraine, and, and they then went on buses from Chisinau into Ukraine, into these cities, and I think, Dimitri, while I pull up some of these details, you can, you can fill us in on a bit of what's, what the history is behind what's going on there. Yeah, so the, the the city of Uman, or at least back in the day, was more 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 of a town. Essentially, it still is still still is a bit of a town. It has an ancient Jewish uh, Hasidic Jewish graveyard. In fact, it is it is considered the capital city of Hasidism. This particular very Orthodox Jewish, in, not in a Christian way, but very Orthodox um, sect of Jews, where they you know they practice very strict or you know alleged 
post uh, post New Testament Orthodox, you know, Babylonian uh, Jewish religion there. And of course, this is a very Eastern East Eastern European phenomenon. So during the Pale settlement settlement, I guess you can call it Russian imperial discrimination, the Jews really made made their home in Uman for a very long time. In fact, you know, there was a lot of them up north near Chernobyl, but definitely Uman in the south in the Cherkasy region. That was the the biggest hub, and to this day, I think it does have the most famous Jewish graveyard in all of uh, Eastern Europe. Many of their famous rabbis, including uh, some of the rabbis who they claimed would have some, they had these local prophecies about the Moshiach and the you know their version of the Messiah coming forth. All of those rabbis were of course buried at this graveyard. So there is this yearly, um, essentially this yearly pilgrimage which they make. Last year we didn't hear much about it because it, it definitely coincided with not just the Russian mobilization but the strikes upon Kiev and some of those western regions but i did read an article from 2022 where they you know uh, there was this, um, a missile well, like one missile strike i think hit uh the outskirts of uman and somebody called it the um forgive me if i'm wrong but there was a i think it was a jerusalem post time or uh, article and uh they mentioned the, they called it like the holocaust of uman or something like and the missile didn't even hit anyone it hit like a farmhouse or something and look it's like the, the graveyard is very ancient it goes back at least at least 500 years into the past at least towards the polish lithuanian commonwealth but nevertheless we do have these uh and Zelensky, we do have these Hasidic Jews en masse traveling from Israel, from various Western countries, particularly from Israel, from all those Orthodox Jewish communities, which, mind you, take land from Palestinians, which they're very famous for, from some of these settlements on the West Bank in, in uh, you know, nearby Gaza, things of that nature. So it's those particular people traveling to Ukraine, a war-torn country, mind you, a country which is experiencing a lot of strife in order to celebrate their particular holiday in a diocese whose orthodox bishop is currently on house arrest not allowed not not being allowed to serve a liturgy it all aligns quite well doesn't it it's it's all very provocative i think yeah and uh just to i got the details real quick the uh specific branch of hasidism that really makes the pilgrimage out to uman is the breslov branch of hasidic judaism and they believe that rebbe nachman of breslov was basically their their founder and they believe he's like the holiest you know his teachings and his his teachings they're the rabbis that perpetuate them are, you know, the truest expression of Judaism. And uh, Nachman of Breslov is the great grandson of Baal Shem Tov, who is the founder of Hasidism in general. I just think it's funny that the people that claim to be people of the old book follow someone literally named Baal, like B-A-A-L. That's his name. But uh, it, the symbolism is like too on. Like there's never any. Once these people started wearing the huge hats and identifying it that way, there was almost no need for any kind of, you know, the. The, the symbolism is just a that obvious thing, like they follow someone named Baal, is just a, a cherry on top for the fact that these people have clearly separated themselves from anything remotely akin to the true tradition of the Israel of the true God and Jesus Christ. But it's fascinating because, again, they all were flew into Chisinau, took all these buses into Uman, trashed all the buses, of course, and and now, like Dimitri said, the, the there's this they're dancing in the streets, they're celebrating again. Zelensky, you know the the Jewish president of Ukraine. I mean, this is, it, it, you really start to realize that the that, that there are rich people that have had meetings and talked about, you know, the specific region of Ukraine with Uman being kind of the far northern part all the way down to Odessa and down even into Zaporozhye, that this is like a kind of greater Israel. They want to turn this into a, you know, like a second Jewish homeland. And it's uh, it's it's the fact that it's just happening with the total support of, you know, <laughs> all these like supposed Christians and, you know, that this, uh, you know, Zelensky stands in front of, you know, icons whenever he needs to rally people to die. But then when it's time to let people express their religion peacefully, you know, it's just, it's these types and then they're going to arrest 
you're going to arrest peaceful nuns and and others. So it's it's quite the dichotomy, and it does it does elucidate the broader civilizational conflict, which isn't even Russia versus the West. It's even it's even deeper than that, and this this specifically kind of kind of shows all of that. But uh, before we uh, before we talk about some different rabbis in uh, <laughs> in uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, and we get into the conflict there, I want to talk about uh, an interview that we that w- went on. Uh, I don't know the exact date on it. You could probably correct me, Dimitri. But Gabriel Doroshin, if our favorite heir to the throne of Imperial Russia, has been very outspoken about what he thinks about what should happen in Russia itself. What are uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, there was an amazing interview, of course. We've mentioned Gabriel Doroshin before in some of our Telegram and Twitter posts, and I even spoke about him on the podcast, but essentially he's the he's seven or eight generations removed great-grandson of Emperor Nicholas I. So this is Emperor Nicholas I, who reigned from 1825 until 1855, and who passed away during the Crimean War. So essentially a descendant of the Romanov dynasty directly through his mother's line. And uh, Gabriel grew up in France, actually. He's 26 or 27 years um, years old now. And he grew up in France in the sort of Russian Orthodox Rokor community there in Paris. And he's actually a local uh, Parisian, in fact. So he grew up uh, speaking bilingually both French and Russian. His Russian is quite quite good, considering he never lived in Russia itself. But in uh, when he turned 18, actually, his, his 18th birthday coincided with the uh the beginning of the Donbass war so in 2014 he traveled to the Donbass and he actually fought as a volunteer between 2014 and 2017 after that of course after the Minsk accords kind of you know settled things down so to speak and some of the Russian commanders disappeared and the conflict really um became kind of flat and stale he traveled back to France only because he found it very difficult in the in the Donetsk region to actually make a living so he traveled back to France and at the beginning of the SMO Gabriel returned back to to Donetsk, Lugansk, made reconnected with uh, some of his old comrades and has served on the front lines for a year and a half now continuously, which is very admirable for somebody from a pretty, um, not even an affluent family. In fact, in the interview, he does mention the fact that his family, he had no no other familial connections to the Romanovs in terms of like he was never invited to any of the banquets. And the official Romanov house representatives, they've openly st- stated that they do not recognize him as heir to the throne. But funny enough, so he's extremely, let's just uh, cut to the chase here. Gabriel is extremely based because of course the interview was three hours long and it was recorded, I, I believe a week and a half, two weeks ago, but it definitely took them a while to release it. And in the interview, he speaks about the fact that well, Stilkov should be free. Ukraine doesn't exist. It's not a historical entity. He says that you know, <laughs> like it just cuts to the chase of a lot of a lot of these massive subjects. And they ask him all kinds of really, um, you could say, on point questions. For example, well, should would you make abortion illegal? He's like, absolutely, abortion should be completely illegal. It is you know the murder of children, and there should be education around it too. Especially women should understand you know uh, women and men and things like that. He says, well, and they're like, well, what do we do? Do we increase contraception? He's like, no, just premarital sex should just not take place like so he he made like open open very christian statements which you know you could hear a, a local priest say and and this young man who you know is you know has gone to church his entire life he's, he's an example of an actual proper cradle dox orthodox uh, western christian who has actually you know stayed on the right path for a long time now is actively participating in the conflict you know supporting his supporting his people over there in uh, donetsk and in fact he um some of the other subjects he spoke about, well, they asked him historical questions like, well, what's your opinion of like Nicholas II? He says, well, he's a pious Tsar and he's a martyr. And then he mentions, funny enough, because Nicholas II is canonized in the Russian, in the main Russian church as, as a confessor, not as a martyr. And he mentions that, no, he's actually, he is a martyr because Nicholas II was martyred by Freemasons and uh, them boys. And he says, well, them boys ritually killed him. 
our former Tsar. And he says, because of that, he shouldn't be classified as a confessor because confessorship kind of denotes the fact that you were killed by your own people, but he wasn't killed by his own people. He was, he was suffering mainly under the influence of Freemasons and those particular people, uh, you know, that I've mentioned prior. So very interesting. This is Gabriel de Rochon's direct words, paraphrasing, and that transitions to just the fact that he started speaking about um, this particular subject. He says that, well, they said, look, the interviewer said, well, well, look, we don't really support any of these uh, strong and discriminatory statements. He's like, no, that's okay. You just need to understand the fact that these people rejected God a long time ago. You can read about it in the Bible. And they said, uh, the blood is on us and on our people. Uh, his blood, you know, speaking about the Messiah. And yeah, so he went really into detail on all of that. And funny thing, of course, him being the descendant of the Romanovs, Conrad, the, the subject came up. It's like, well, do you, do you look forward to the restoration of the monarchy? And he says, look, I, I don't have any legal claim to the throne whatsoever because, frankly, you know, eight generations removed, it's on my mother's side. Legally speaking, I'm, I'm not a descendant. But he says, look, if the Russian people call upon me to be a Tsar, I'll accept it. <laughs> it's kind of kind of like this very epic to the point, almost like in a, which which is what we've, we've been missing for a very long time. We're missing directness. And he just says, look, uh, he's like, I, I, I don't believe it's it's Christian of me to fight for power or to fight for influence or anything. But if the Russian people do need a leader to lead them, I'll, I'll take that upon myself. And if the Russian people, if God selects me to rule, and if the Russian people come to me with this proposal, similar to how they, in the ancient times, came to Rurik, came to Fyodor Ivanovich, came to all these rulers alongside the bishop and just said, look, we God has chosen you to rule as the Tsar, similar to how the people of ancient Israel, and he, he makes this connection where, of course, it's very biblical. And it's, it's funny that he knows all these details because in, in the Bible, of course, when King Saul passes, you know, dies in war, the people of Judea and Israel, of course, come to King, King David in order to proclaim him king. And in a similar way in Russian history, the people of Russia, alongside their bishops, would approach the next heir to the throne and ask him the next heir to rule over them as the Tsar. And so he says that, well, look, that's potential if you guys ever want to do that. But in fact, but, you know, he does have some critical statements about Russia too. So he mentions, well, because the interview is three hours long, so Gabriel goes into details about, well, he, him living in Donetsk and Lugansk at the moment, he says the big issue is nutrition. So he says, oh, look, the food in Russia, he says, is like not as good as what we have in France. So he says uh, Russian nutritional standards should be, he went into on this tangent for about 10 minutes speaking about like how Russians should be eating more protein and stuff like that. It was very, and should be eating less chemicals because a lot of their food, of course, is produced on like cheap, cheap factories with a lot of uh, chemical produce and things that, you know, preserve food for a long time. In Russia, he says, that's a major issue. I was like, okay, that's kind of a niche subject my man. And then he, of course, went into details about how, well, he believes the SMO has been, there's definitely been some hiccups. And he mentioned the fact that, you know, Yevgeny Prigozhin's death has definitely been, because he fought, specifically fought under Bakhmut and Solidar. So that was his particular uh, the deployment over last, uh, I guess you can say 12 months time. So he was particularly assisting Wagner very much on the ground. So it was, it was quite an interesting interview. Generally speaking, there are no negative sides to this young man. I mean, yes, uh, he has grown up in France in the West, but similar to, I mean, even Bishop Salvo of Zelenograd, for example, he's an immigrant too. He immigrated to Russia when he was a teenager, and now he's the one of the leading bishops of Moscow, you can say. So there is this, like, I guess, big reunion of Russians actually born overseas who then later end up traveling to Russia and serving in some capacity. I think it's very admirable. And whether or not this discussion is does lead down some sort of path of monarchy, I think it's still curious that, you know, God does grant us these, these I guess, really cool and uh, affluent examples of young Christian laymen who, you know, are willing to serve on the front lines who we can somewhat follow, maybe, uh, like a future future position of leadership. And the fact that he's, you know, well-spoken, handsome, 
uh, likable guy. It's it's a bit rare these days, I would say, because most of these people either end up dead or under end up ostracized or maybe you know pushed to the side somewhat. So it I, I think it's uh, it was a wonderful interview. Unfortunately, not released in the English language yet. Maybe eventually they'll either dub it or add subtitles. And this, of course, big shout out to Abuknavian Tsarism, which is translates to Ordinary Tsarism. That is the YouTube channel. Uh, it's quite a big YouTube channel. It's just been kind of uh, it was created during the SMO and they they have really great interviews especially um for Russian audiences and interviewing Gabriel the Russian yeah definitely a highlight of the week oh i'm hoping as a as a low IQ non polyglot, I'm hoping it can be subtitled or something but Deroshan yeah. is such an interesting character to me not just because you know we are nationalist czarist orthodox people on this show but the fact that he fought in the donbass the fact that even the fact that he comes from france it's this kind of emergence of this you, you don't just need a good leader you need the emergence of a new national myth like new new stories to reinvigorate the population to to inspire them you know new heroes to name their children after and these sorts of things and deroshan not only you know did he is his story amazing as a warrior but he also the story of how he met his wife. He met her when he came over to the Donbass in a small village, like in the, the zone where there was, was fighting happening, and he brings her back to France. And But then they both move back to Russia. And so if this guy becomes the Tsar, it's kind of like a reverse situation with Tsar Nicholas and Empress Alexandra. You know, the, the Donbass, you know, the heartland wife, you know, brings, in theory, you know, he ends up coming from the West, just like Empress Alexandra came from, you know, Germany, the UK. He comes from France. You know, she unites him to the Russian people. You know, she helped him get better at his Russian and everything like that. And, you know, now they have children together. So there's there's also, in theory, no crisis of uh, of legitimacy. You know, we've proven that he can he can have children. So it's, uh, it's a very interesting character. You know, in Russia, it's hard with, you know, especially people that were born. You know, if anything, it may have helped that he was born outside of Russia because people, you know, his age and older born during the Soviet era have a lot of baggage that very much clashes with the emerging orthodox ethos of of russian civilization right now so pray for gabriel deroshan pray for holy russia you know we are here on the show and it's it's a very encouraging thing but he also even had the right take on strelkov who we're going to do a quick update on before we transition to armenia azerbaijan strelkov unfortunately as they've said the investigation into him has uh, been extended to december 18th so we were all anticipating a possible September release. That is not happening. Maybe we were a bit too, uh, we were just too hopeful be, to be really white-pilled on the Strelkov arrest situation. But again, I do still think our analysis that it does have to do with very much impending and on the verge of being kind of unveiled Russian plans for both the coming rainy season and then the possible cold winter, where if the winter is cold enough, the offensive that we talked about coming likely in February could come even sooner. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, Dimitri. Yeah, I think they're, they're trying to keep Mr. Igor Strelkov under wraps in terms of keeping him preoccupied. They don't want his commentary to be getting out to the Russian public or even those surfing the interwebs on Telegram, which they cannot control because, as you remember, Telegram is one of those free free apps, I suppose. There are rumors that the FSB does have backdoor access to it, you know, from the simultaneity. So CIA and FBI have access to Facebook, but those are, in fact, just rumors. Nevertheless, um, Strelkov has posted his opinion very actively over the last few years. And he has become very critical now. Of course, him and him and him being imprisoned, the only real, uh, you know, 
takes we get from him are very much controlled and under under the influence of his lawyers. So, uh, in fact, he has been silenced. It's just a, it's, it's a real big shame considering the fact that you know what the prosecution is doing during this time while he's detained until December. They're scouring his social media, similar to how, of course, the FBI was scouring the media of the January Sixers. So this is a complete equivalent we can draw here, right? People essentially looking at the material, for example, posted by, uh, you know, let's just let's take some nationalist political commentator like a Nicholas Fuentes or an Alex Jones, right? It's just this cancellation type tactic which prosecutions and investigative agencies use in order to get people on based on what they've said or what they've written in the past. It's just very dirty and the fact that the Russian uh, law enforcement and the and the Department of Prosecution is resorting to this is is quite disgusting, and you know it does it does remind us of you know the Soviet times, right? Because during the Soviet times, well, why did the majority of the priests and clergymen why were they shot in the 1930s under the Stalinist regime in 1937, 38, even earlier in the early 30s? It's because they were allegedly there was uh, accusations brought up against them. They found books in their homes. You know, it does kind of throw back to modern Ukrainian uh, persecutions, of course, but it does. You know, there's allegations were brought up against them, statements that they've made, and this is laymen as well as clergy. So the fact that they're not happy about some of Stelkov's statements, yeah, big deal. He should be frankly released. And Gabriel Doroshin had the correct take on on this particular issue. Regardless of what your opinion of Stelkov is, the fact is that he 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 is he is a a person of of you know, integrity, or Orthodox Christian integrity, and that's rare in today's day and age. And of course, also his imprisonment does kill that sort of. As you mentioned, that that energy of Christian romanticism, which we've been missing in the, pretty much in the West, it's been completely dead. But in Russia, it's been somewhat on and off missing since the 90s because all these various heroes of sorts have been either passing away or disappearing and things of that nature. But Christian romanticism does need to reemerge in some capacity because, frankly, it's either Christian romanticism or it's the cold secular. No offense to Lavrov, but it's like the Lavrovian type, you know, heroism, which, as we've seen in the Soviet Union, it doesn't lead anywhere. The country falls apart in the 90s. Nobody cares about it. There is no support for it. People like Yeltsin take over. It's completely like you cannot build a country without some of these legendary figures, some of these uh, massive figures popularity, whom Strelkov is. So in fact, you know, just this uh, oppression of the, the right wing in Russia really needs to be put to an end. And this main, the order may need to come all the way from the top, frankly. So that's what we're hoping for. But yeah, very uh, unfortunate news from him. I couldn't agree more. We're getting uh, about 50 minutes now, so let's move on to Armenia, Azerbaijan. We have some pretty dramatic reports coming out of Russian sources basically saying that Azerbaijan could move in at any time. I know last week we reported that Turkey had really threatened Iran. Apparently that was overzealous Armenian media trying to implicate Turkey. I think they made a few statements against Iran, but nothing so far as, we're going to go to war with you, so, you know, correction here, you know, you heard it. But in general, obviously... Again, it's 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 one of these situations where I, I do ultimately stand with Armenia. I don't think Azeri, Azerbaijani people should. I don't want Muslims storming over Christians' borders. But I can't, from a diplomatic perspective, it's hard to stand with Armenia. Armenia doesn't even have the balls to diplomatically recognize the Artsakh Republic as independent, let alone part of Armenia. So claiming that Russia betrayed Artsakh, which is what Pashinyan is doing, and what his kind of cabal in, in Yerevan are trying to, the narrative they're trying to perpetuate, that's just not going to fly. And I don't think most Armenians go along with that. And in general, I mean, Armenians are all kind of being pressed on all sides. The Israelis have taken 25% of the Armenian quarter. We've talked about the kind of 
scummy backwards land lease taking processes where they go and squat and then they use their connections in the courts to get their you know lease issues messed with and then eventually Israeli groups come in and they basically have reappropriated land and the Armenians have a big you know quarter in the Christian section of Jerusalem and they you know have access to the Holy Sepulchre and you know they're being they're marching in the streets against this and Israelis are attacking them there too so we know Israel and Azerbaijan are major allies there so of course there's there's going to be some some mutual hostility but this comes at the same time it kind of ties in with what we were talking about in Ukraine with the the Hasidim going there from from Chisinau and from Israel there's uh the head rabbi I guess of the uh, Azeri Jews in Georgia he uh was speaking to an audience I guess a broad Armenia just a general audience addressing Armenians saying that Armenia is an anti-Semitic country and that all Jews still living in Armenia need to flee and go to Azerbaijan and Georgia and all these sorts of things. And again, like, it's, it's, we, we kind of, part of the big backdrop of our show is presenting that, you know, them boys, they have historical enemies and Russians are kind of one of those main ones. That's a big focus of the show. Armenians are definitely, you know, a group of those people as well, especially based on their presence in you know, in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land, and just their proximity to to Greater Israel. I mean, I think we've we've saw the finance minister a few months back have the Greater Israel sign on his lectern. I mean, Armenia is in that milieu, so it's it's very important. Yeah, this was the uh, Sephardic rabbi Zamir Isayev, the chairman of the Georgian Sephardic community in Azerbaijan. So he's a Georgian Sephardic rabbi in Azerbaijan who says, I urge Jews who remain in Armenia in a country where you are threatened because other Jews in another country have a different opinion. It is simply dangerous to remain. I understand that you're under a lot of pressure to publicly speak out against the opinions of leading rabbis in Europe, Israel, and Muslim countries who are outraged by the use of the Holocaust theme by Armenian propaganda. Yeah, they hate Armenians talking about the Armenian genocide because they think it, you know, denigrates the Holocaust. And they say, if at least one of your parents is Jewish and you have a birth certificate issued before 1991, contact me. I will help you move to Azerbaijan. Even in Israel, they directly state that Azerbaijan is one of the safest countries in the world for Jews. Don't wait until someone in Armenia decides to take out their hatred on you. So this guy is just using the ADL playbook on every Jewish person in Armenia, I guess. I don't even know how many you know, Jews there are in Armenia, probably not that many, if this is the rhetoric they get hit with. But, you know, he's doing the whole, like, I mean, it's just, they know how to do this. You know, they whip, the, they really know how to whip these people up into a frenzy with the, with the, you know, they invoke the Holocaust, they do all this, and, you know, it's the ADL as well. The ADL whips all these people in America, a very wealthy demographic, I might add, up in America about supposed hate and anti-Semitism on a website like X, and then suddenly, you know, these nonprofits are publishing studies, and Elon is banning people based on a study that showed that 338 tweets got like 6,000 impressions. Therefore, anti-Semitism is a problem on the website. That should be the fact that they even publish that data is so ridiculous. This kind of all ties in with the ban the ADL stuff. But we're getting a bit far-fetched from Armenia, Azerbaijan. But this just does show you that, you know, Armenia, despite having basically betrayed Russia, trying to Renege with the West, trying to work with France, trying to work with people, you know, Pashinyan is calling Erdogan, you know, he's trying to make this work, trying to not get, have all their territory lost while still somehow not siding with the Russians. I don't think that's possible, but it shows you that them boys don't care. I mean, Armenia is a historical enemy, so they're gonna, they're gonna put the pedal to the metal on this. They're, they're, they want to see their ally take Christian land. And these people, you know, they're gonna even ask their people to get out of there because I think if they had their way, the Israelis and the Azeris, they would they would go in scorched earth on Armenia. I think with and Turkey would look the wouldn't just look the other way. They cheer them on. 
Yeah, and we've seen, uh, you know, just more evidence of Israeli-Azerbaijani cooperation, which does show that Azerbaijan is one of the most, I guess, influential Middle, Middle Eastern countries in modern history, not just having ties with Russia, some of its neighbors in terms of diplomacy, Turkey, of course, and now with Iran as well. But let's just firstly speak about the, the fact that we've seen Israeli military cargo planes fly from Israel to Azerbaijan several times over the last few days, which, of course, harkens back to reports from early in the Second Korobach War in 2020. This is um, just prior to COVID in fact that there were military planes seen and you can imagine in order to get to Azerbaijan you wouldn't you wouldn't need to fly through Armenia so what what the, these planes do is they fly from Israel all around through Turkish airspace of course which is completely protected as I guess these are allied states in fact and it flies all around the Caucasus right through Georgia and into uh, Baku Azerbaijan which is all the way on the Caspian coast so it's quite a long journey but these planes do deliver military aid from Israel which is a very militarized country it does have similar to North Korea it does have you know, equipment to spare, and it does have supplies to spare to the Azerbaijani force. Now, Azerbaijan, you mentioned they are they are the top dogs in this argument. They've won the Second Karabakh War pre-COVID. They they do have a battle-hardened army. The, there were some reforms in Armenia, so we're not sure exactly what kind of um, you know, you know Armenia does receive aid from. I mean, they do they do continue to purchase Russian weapons as does Azerbaijan. So Russia funds both sides like directly. But these are trans. These are not. There's not free assistance. This is e economic. You can say almost um commercial like transactions here. So both sides purchase Russian equipment and weapons. In fact, Russia is a major exporter to to both of them. And in fact, you know where this could particularly could lead in terms of Russian relations, we're not too sure. Especially as we mentioned last week, with the peacekeepers still remaining in that particular Nagorno-Karabakh zone, at least a thousand Russian peacekeepers are there, maybe as, as many as 2,000. So how those peacekeepers, will they be pulled out if Azerbaijan does make a move? We're not too sure here. But yeah, definitely it's not looking too good for Armenia, both on the diplomatic end and on the military end, especially given it to how the last war uh, concluded. Now, we we also needed to keep in mind the uh, the recent meeting on the, September the 12th, actually, defense ministers, um, deputies of sorts and generals from Iran, so Persia, met, met up in Baku with leaders of the Azerbaijan military and, they, and they've discussed joint military exercises and defense defense exercises that they could carry out in the future training this is not of course a defense treaty of any sort or, or any defense alliance but the fact that iran like we've mentioned this before azerbaijan and iran they do have these historical gripes and now suddenly azerbaijan has made friends of iran or at least has come to some sort of agreement possibly this is a precursor to an escalation between armenia and azerbaijan and azerbaijan is essentially telling iran look we don't want you guys involved um, this is just a personal conflict between the two of us. You know, I'm kind of simplifying it, but it could be something of that sort. And just the fact that I Iran maybe now the fact that they're being invited into BRICS and there is a sort of time of prosperous capitalistic peace, you can say, on the horizon. Perhaps Iran just doesn't want to get involved right now in this Middle Eastern Gordian knot and maybe just doesn't want to join in and get tied into this entire... Um, and in fact, do you really want to support Pashinyan, right? Like, I mean, this is not a really likable guy, nor his government in Yerevan, who, you know, half the ministers were already sacked by him since the beginning of COVID. So it's not like this administration is, is really a stalwart and strong. It's not really something I think the Persians would want to support long term. Again, not very good news. And I agree with you, Connor. We don't want to see like uh, Muslim boots trample on even Armenian apostolic churches and, and monastery grounds, right, as they push deeper into Armenia. I mean, that's just the not the sort of, not something I think anybody wants to see, in fact. Yeah, I, I have zero good things to say about Pashinyan. I, I, I wouldn't really even be sad if he got the Qaddafi treatment outside of maybe a loose Christian sense. I mean, at this point, it seems that the Americans are training Armenian police to fight against rioting Armenians, 
because, uh, I mean, it seems that, we, we've talked about this in the last episodes, Pashinyan totally neutered the Armenian military, kicked out all the most competent commanders because they were all, according to him, you know, pro-Russian. And basically, if he hadn't done that, he would have already gotten cooed out by a national by nationalists, and it would have been popularly supported. So he's been, that's part of why he's working so closely with the West, is they're giving him intelligence assets, and now they're apparently even training his, you know, police force to crack down on his own people, who are really not happy with him selling out the Russians and kicking them out because the Armenian people know. I mean, there's all, there was all sorts of reports at the line of contact and everything that even the Russians were not happy with the conduct of Azeri troops and understood kind of the dynamic on the ground. But that doesn't matter to Pashinyan. I'm sure he's getting rich off of all of this. You know, maybe maybe somehow he thinks he can survive this and turn it into a George Nato shill country. But I'm not sure necessarily the Armenian people are going to have it, especially if he loses if he even especially even losing, you know, Artsakh at all, let alone possible actual current Armenian territory. Yeah, that's right. The uh, the outcome would be, of course, tragic for Armenia, given the fact that you know the the second war really didn't take much territory from them. In fact, the fact that you know Russian and Western peacekeepers were involved, or at least uh, you know the West the diplomatically they were the they were kind of calling for peace in this particular conflict, but Russia got involved directly. Russia is a bit too preoccupied. We aren't in twenty twenty anymore. And I'm not sure if, if Russia would even want to get involved. And this was one of the main accusations of Pashinyan siding with the West was he was saying, well, the collective security treaty organization, it simply hasn't worked out. Russia needed to defend us. But uh, yeah, it does it does come into the, it does kind of speak to the fact that, well, was Armenia attacked first by Azerbaijan? Who actually threw the first stone? And again, it's similar. It's not exactly cut in, you know, it's not exactly legalistically to the letter here in terms of like, oh, is it an Article 5 type of moment? For the CSTO, and it, frankly, let's be honest, the CSTO wasn't really a strong organization to begin with. In fact, uh, countries like you know in Central Asia and Ukraine itself pulled out of it a, lot, a little while ago. So you know it really didn't hold much. Uh, I doubt Pashinyan realistically actually depended on the CSTO agreement for much uh, besides you know military joint exercises. So let's not uh, let's not kind of die for his rhetoric. But in terms of like them boys being involved in all this, we do understand Azerbaijan friends of Turkey, friends of Israel, now, of course, mending ties with Iran. But this is only temporary, mind you. It's only a band-aid over some ancient ancient lore, ancient wounds between the, the Persians and the Turkic people of the mountains. So uh, it's not going to really settle it, I think, in this particular fallen world, especially given if you look at, like, if you even bring up Google Maps, given where Azerbaijan and Turkey Turkey and Iran stand like long term. This territory is very much disputed. But let's just uh, figure out the fact that them boys have been involved in this region for a very long time. We spoke about like Rothschild's influence in Caspian oil during the late Russian Empire, Alexander III putting an end to that. Well, um, the fact that there are various communities going back to the Khazarian Khaganate, and you have uh, Georgian Jews, you have Gorne Yevriye, which are mountain Jews. And these are, these are two communities which are actually opposed to one another. They never really cooperate. In fact, Gorne Yevriye probably a remnant of the ancient Khazarians, whereas Georgian Jews are, you know, essentially local Jews living in the Georgian valleys, and they were very much integrated into high Georgian society to some point, given that Georgia is very orthodox, but they did, in fact, you can say masquerade. And so there's, there's all kinds of ties there. And of course, as you mentioned, the Armenian community may be a lot smaller, but in fact, the Azerbaijani rabbi is calling for them to leave. In fact, you know, this sort of wartime World War II type rhetoric that you would see from, you know, like a, like a sidekick of a Winston Churchill claiming that the Nazis have begun, you know, approaching against these people and it's time to call for a war of some sort i mean it's very it's very um it's very rhetorical and it's very reminiscent of the public relations tactics we would see during the second world war so and i'm not sure what kind of validity it would have given the fact that pashinyan is probably not starting up any programs or anything like that 
Yeah, I mean, I think we can hope that the Armenian people and the military is able to regain some sovereignty and get this get this goober out of there. But unfortunately, it seems, I mean, he staged a rally with like a few thousand fake supporters and Indian immigrants to make it look like he's popular. But, you know, it's I don't think anybody's buying it. I, it'd be better if the diaspora was more vocal against him because they're a lot bigger than the actual population of you know, Armenia proper, but we know the Armenian diaspora, the most famous member of that is Kim Kardashian. So no offense to the good Armenians that feel terrible about what's happened in their country, but I, unfortunately, it doesn't appear, it do, I, I'm, I'm wagering they, they just kind of lose in the next few months, unfortunately. We'll be praying for, you know, peace in that region as well, but towards another region that is plagued with territorial irregularities and disputes, things have been a, a kind of uh, heating up in Serbska and in Kosovo. Just It seems that whenever something heats up in Serbska, Alban Kurti comes out and goes hard against the Serbs in Kosovo just to make up for it. But Serbska, Dodik, you know, our favorite character, you know, possibly our favorite head of state, despite being the head of a not-recognized state, he never fails to impress. And he is basically... He was indicted by a Bosnian court for going against, you know, the integrity and the charter of Bosnia and Herzegovina and, you know, the whole extensive, you know, legal legalese that holds that coalition of Muslims, Catholics, and Orthodox people together. He's, you know, been indicted. Obviously, I guess that means in theory he could be in trouble if he steps foot outside of Republika Srpska, because Republika Srpska itself already uh, no longer recognizes the central court and Supreme Court of Bosnia and Herzegovina, so this indictment, according to them, effectively means nothing. But he not only, you know, has kind of mocked the indictment, he even said that, this is a quote from Dodik, if he, he meaning Christian Schmidt, the European Union's high, like the, his, like the, uh, the head of Bosnia and Herzegovina from the, you know, kind of the supervisor of the civilian government there, leading them into democracy, you know, their European handler, their NATO handler. If he, Christian Schmidt, comes for a meeting to Republika Srpska, he will be kicked out, Dodik said, adding that in case the envoy transits through the territory, he will be given an escort that will make sure he leaves as soon as possible. So, I mean, I guess if this guy tries to enter what technically is territory that he has jurisdiction over, this would be a very interesting development. The Serbs in the region would be like, no, get out, which, you know, again, at what at what point is secession just a real thing that's happened on the ground? You know, again, there's going to be no legal recognition of Republika Srpska, even by Serbia, because it's playing this EU game. But for all intents and purposes, you know, there's a country of, you know, a few hundred thousand, close, you know, maybe even close to a million Serbs that, you know, basically just exists right now. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, uh, the West has blamed Moscow's influence in the region, for example. Like, they've clearly stated that Moscow has backed Dodik, and this, in fact, could be West, uh, you know, Eastern meddling in the affairs of, like, an Euro European nation. But, in fact, Russia does have this uh, obligation against, in terms of international affairs, to fight for not just Serbian independence, but Serbian, I guess, presence and cultural uh, cultural presence, which it did not do in the 90s. And in fact, you know, to support them against, say, the Muslim majority, make sure that, you know, they're actually being heard and looked after in that particular area. But let's just uh, let's just be frank here. I think Dodik is keeping the tension very high on, on Bosnia and, and on that particular Balkan region. He's, I mean, in fact, he's almost more, more of like a right-wing leader of, of Serbs than, say, you could say Vucic is. So in fact, Dodik could even be seen. I mean, he could be. He could have political aspirations for himself in the future. And you know, maybe if Republika Srpska is ever reunited with uh, Greater Serbia, as as it should historically, maybe uh, we could see Dodik run for even the presidency of Serbia, or in, as a as you know, perhaps maybe even as a prime minister of some sort. So I do think he definitely has aspirations of of a higher kind. That's just we're not sure where. But he's playing this game very carefully. Notice he's not leaving Republika Srpska. He's not going to get himself. You know, he knows there's indictments coming. There's probably. Uh, maybe even warrants for his arrest coming 
right? So let's just expect this matter to escalate very slowly, but the tension is definitely uh, definitely very high in that particular region. And look, frankly, this is uh, to the benefit of the local Serbs. They do need to understand that they have a say in how how their particular region, their administrative region in Bosnia and Herzegovina is is governed because look, since the since the nineteen ninety five and all those issues with the fall of Yugoslavia and the civil wars, the Serbians in Bosnia have been hit over the head with this hammer that look, you guys are like the new Nazis. You've called the, you've caused the genocide of the Bosnians. You are the bad guys. You do need to submit to us and submit to European values. And when that's just not the case, the modern generation of Serbians born. After 1995, you can say like the Serbian Zoomers have no, or even the Serbian Millennials were simply children when whatever happened took place in the 90s. They have no obligation to pay any sort of reparations to the Muslim Bosnians. In fact, if anything, they have to actually continue to hold strong to their particular cultural ties to greater Serbia, their Orthodox traditions. They need to you know, culturally sort of enrich themselves with their own, with their own heritage and not kind of give it up similar to what has been done you know, to say, Japan or Germany after the Second World War. So that's in fact what the West has been trying to push upon these Bosnian Serbians. But that's simply not not the end goal here. And I think Dodik is a big representative. Like essentially him coming from a boomer generation, it's quite quite good to see him stand up for the essentially the rights of his future generations of Bosnian Serbs. I think he's uh, kind of laying the groundwork for perhaps a future reunion of the people. Croatia and Bosnia must shrink. Serbia will grow, hail Dodik, Kosovo is Serbia. But regarding Kosovo, that's even almost just as big news is uh, there was a proposal put forward in Brussels that would have, you know, finally kind of solved the Kosovo-Serbia question. And it was rejected by Albin Kurti, the head of quote-unquote Kosovo. And it's really interesting, the specific articles of it that he rejected, the most important ones being the uh, Completion of negotiations uh, for the statute of the self-management instrument for Serbs in Kosovo. That's obviously the biggest one that would the the Serbs the the majority Serbian areas of northern Kosovo would be able to have some kind of self-autonomy, you know, self-governance, you know, not be fully under the boot of a Muslim force. They had a problem with that. They had a problem with the uh, formalization of the status of the Serbian Orthodox Church in Kosovo. You know, fully giving you know the patriarch the jurisprudence and the ability to travel freely as if he were in any other territory, you know, Montenegro, Serbia, you know, where he has his jurisdiction, Serbska. But, you know, this is, this just shows that this guy is a thug and he knows that ultimately, even if the U.S. clamps down on him, the U.S. is fundamentally in favor of the independent Kosovo project and he's popular among the Kosovar Albanians. So they're never really going to take him out unless it gets really, really bad. So he knows that he can just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until the, you know, Maybe he's hoping Dodik does something big in Bosnia so public opinion can turn against Serbs, so the West can whip up anti-Serb sentiment again and then be like, yeah, what? Yeah, the Serbs in Kosovo don't need autonomy. They can get up and leave and go to Serbia if they don't want to be there anymore. And we know that's nonsense. All of Kosovo is Serbia. The Muslims are the ones that need to leave. So it's uh, it's very interesting. Obviously, we do not like Albin Kurti. And again, even the Westoids think he's a pain in the ass. So... It's a it's a tense it's a tense situation. You know, you've got kind of the best of the best with Dodik and the worst of the worst with someone like Kurti. But we're obviously going to be watching it very closely. Unless you have anything else you want to say about that, Dimitri, I'm going to quickly tap the people in on what's going on in Italy with all the migrants, and then we'll uh, give a few other updates on India, and then start to wrap this up. Yeah, I think the situation in Italy is very very much telling. It you know. So Italy was one of the the Italian forces in Kosovo were actually holding 
holding the Muslim immigrant-controlled areas and, you know, fighting back against Serbian aggression for a while now. And now, finally, Italy itself, of course, has been experiencing mass migration from Muslim countries in Northern, Northern Africa. And it does kind of, it's kind of like a, it's kind of telling that the fact that Italians do want a right-wing leader but simply cannot obtain one. Meanwhile, Serbians are, you know, more or less, uh, kind of even Vucic himself is rising up to the occasion. But while, while the Italian leaders are somewhat falling short. For example, like Maloney, as you mentioned, has completely betrayed all of her obligations to her electorate, uh, almost completely. So the Italian people voted for her specific type policies, her specific attitudes towards migration, and she has completely betrayed her own constituents, which, you know, I, I'm not sure what her plans are in life, but I don't think she's going to be re-elected after the sort of shows she's been putting on for the last few weeks. Given the given the fact that immigration hasn't really slowed down over the last uh, over the last few years of her being in office, oh, it's really terrible. And look, I'm not necessarily surprised. You know, woman in politics, you know, tale as old as time, right? But at the end of the day, you got to you got to pay attention to the to the political mechanism. Like I was paying attention to dissident right politics in Europe. You know, kind of before it became even bigger to discuss. You know, back in you know 2015, 2016, 2017, when people like Salvini were rising up. And I mean, just to, to report what's on the ground real quick, the big news is that this town, Lampedusa, Italy, it's in the near Genoa. Sorry for Italians if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but basically it's a town of 6,000 people has now been swamped by over 8,000, in the past few days, 8,000 sub-Saharan African immigrants coming from the North African coast. Again, that's the thing. It's not like these are even just Arabs. These are just straight sub-Saharan Africans, you know, most Muslims as well from Muslim countries like, you know, Chad, Niger, Sudan, Nigeria. But... You know, they, they swamped this town. There's now more illegal black African immigrants than there are any kind of Italian. I think they even outnumber a lot of the tourists. And, you know, this is, this is completely unsustainable. This is meanwhile, headlines are coming out about how, how Giorgia Maloney learned to love migrants and like all this kind of nonsense. She's completely caved. She obviously is a huge Ukraine hawk. So no praises there. And it's just, it's just awful. I mean, we saw Salvini's meteoric rise in the face of just horrible, horrible left-wing governance. And unfortunately, you know, he bears some he bears some guilt. He moved too early. He collapsed the coalition where he was the Ministry of the Interior in a, in a coalition with the uh, centrist five-star populist party who, you know, they had the prime ministership. He tried to move against them. They didn't have enough power. The five-star populists then did a coalition with the socialists, and there was a horrible left-wing government that limped along for a few months until, oh, who comes in? This new person on the scene, you know, a kind of a reappropriated former, you know, fascist party comes out and now, oh, they're more popular, they're more traditional and everything. And they, but oh, it turns out, you know, the people that had been in the trenches so long get boxed out of the leadership and now, and then Berlusconi died, who was, he was friends with Putin. And so any pro-Russian elements were gone. And of course, now we have this horrible Maloney situation who, again, you know, she betrays us on Ukraine. Oh, maybe she'll hold the line on immigration. Nope. Total failure. These entire towns have been completely overrun by sub-Saharan Africans. This is completely, I mean, Italians are getting insanely radicalized. That's the only positive thing coming out of this. I mean, in Italy, you talk to people, people are raving, people want Mussolini back, people are sick of Maloney, people, you know, maybe they'll vote for her again just because she's not the left, but I, I don't see any reason why the true right, a, a coalition that would be explicitly calling her out from the right, wouldn't start to rise up. I think that's, that's something big that we're gonna be seeing. And it's unfortunate to see, look, I love Italy, I've been there, it's a beautiful place. And to see it just be completely overrun by just a complete, something that is so preventable. You could stop this just with a little bit of political will, but it seems that political will doesn't exist. But, you know, we're getting close to the end here. Going to move on to a few other issues. I want to talk about India. I think I, we may have mentioned this 
in the last episodes, but India is renaming itself, you know, the civilization state of Bharat. And again, this is this kind of ties into some of you know some of the kind of anti-colonial third world stuff that we get into. So it's not like we're, you know, cheering for India to reject its colonial past or something like that. But I think it's important that we recognize what's happening here. And this is India, you know, totally emerging as a Hindu nationalist civilization state. Which you know that's not all entirely good. Muslims and Christians in India are, are facing persecution. There's no doubt about it. However, that is also being exploited by international groups to try to destabilize Modi's regime. Because look, regardless of what you think of him at all, I'm not enough of an expert on Indian politics to really praise Modi as much as some other people I know who know more do. But there's no doubt that the ability to kind of navigate a single political entity with over 1.4 billion people and the religious and ethnic and linguistic diversity that India has and to form a national movement to maintain popularity and, you know, to maintain your place in multipolarity as well, not necessarily angering the West too much, but also, you know, not fully jumping in with bricks like we've seen. They've really maintained their own independence. It just shows the power of wielding both a population that large and, you know, it is a testament to Modi's statecraft. He's definitely, you know, somewhat of a gifted politician. And it's very important that, you know, we watch India because their relations with China are going to be critical in you know, what we believe will be the hotter eras of World War III that are to come. And we talk a lot about Arunachal Pradesh and Ladakh, but, you know, what India is doing right now and changing its name to Bharat is really reasserting this Hindu nationalist civilization. This is something that comes from, like, the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas, and it's a, it's just a reassertion of the of the historical myths that, you know, you hear about with, you know, Krishna and Vishnu and, you know, Lord Indra and all these other characters you hear about their, uh, this is becoming the relevant mythos of, of India. And of course, they are part of this as they use it as a decolonial thing. They signal against British occupation and whatnot, which of course is popular. But in general, India is, is very much facing pressure from the West. It might be one of the most targeted countries of Western intelligence and you know, Western economic warfare right now because of their power to boost the Russian market with their energy consumption and just their relevant location on the world island and we know that so much of this is a battle for that heartland the battle for the world island you know alfred mckinder you know heartland theory you know to control the world is control eastern europe you know and then by an extension the subcontinent becomes very important as well as it becomes so populated i'm getting i'm getting very broad and civilizational here but in that same vein i want to you know we this may be a first on the show we don't usually talk about non-Christian prophecies, but I think it's it's relevant and it's interesting. There have been some discussions of kind of two overlapping prophecies, a Hindu prophecy about the Kalki avatar returning to India and kind of restoring Bharat that we're kind of hearing about. And that coincides with an Islamic prophecy supposedly from Ghazwa-e-Hind. I don't know who that is. It's just from a Muslim source. He uh, warns of a pagan government coming to India and initiating mass killings of, you know, quote-unquote, people of the book, you know, meaning Muslims and Muslims refer to Christians, Jews, and Muslims as people of the book, you know, Abrahamic kind of idea. They believe that at the time, the Mahdi will send his army for their protection, which means some kind of Muslim authority. I don't know what this would be in the prophecy, and then the pagan government will be, you know, taken on. So I guess in theory, there would be a war between, I guess, India and Pakistan, I guess, would be the relevant Islamic country. Maybe Imran Khan emerges back into power after being arrested, and him and Modi have a Muslim nationalist versus Hindu nationalist war. You know, this is all very interesting, except none of it sounds good for the Christians in India, who, of course, we are praying for and we are rooting for 
But I don't know, Dimitri, do you have any thoughts on the uh, on the situation in India? Yeah, only that there are, of course, prophecies going back, you know, speaking about speaking about the Muslims and and the Hindus. But we do need to keep in mind, it's like not all the time. We don't have to necessarily take a Duganist opinion on this, like a full Eurasianist broad integrationist approach, for example, we don't need to really associate the figure of, let's just say, like a Dajjal with the like the Christian reference of the Antichrist, or maybe even like a Mahdi as like a Moshiach or like a Messiah type figure. These, these particular heroic or antagonistic figures in like Muslim eschatology don't necessarily align with exactly what the Christian views are necessarily. So we need, we I totally, need to keep that in mind. I totally agree. I think it's just, it's just interesting to notice as these as like it's kind of the same thing that's happening all over the world is you know the secularization of society is is moving away and people you know just like people in Russia are recognizing the prophecies of their saints and elders people in India and Pakistan are doing the same to the point where it's becoming geopolitically relevant you know it's not just around the fire in the tent and of course our contention is that only our prophets and our saints are going to be the ones that give you the accurate picture that if you follow them you will actually you know you can navigate the uh, you know, these latter days properly. That's not to say that there may not be certain, you know, clerics and scholars and other communities that happen to get it correct, but systematically, of course, we know the full truth is in the Orthodox Church and in the living saints and the living tradition and the working of the Holy Spirit across all of Orthodoxy today and how, and I believe very much if you're going to be looking at the geopolitical spectrum of the world, it, it very much becomes something important that you can look at. We We like to talk about it all on this show, but Unless there's, uh, you know, we're really getting to the end here. We There's big discourse on Twitter with, you know, the ban, the ADL stuff is still going on. And even more so, people like Lauren Chen, like very normie conservative tier people are very much, they're not just noticing the ADL connection. You know, basically everybody on the right had to disavow the ADL. And that was pretty easy because the ADL is aligned even against right-wing Zionist groups. But even more so than that, people are realizing even in Israel itself, religious Jews, you know, these would be right-wing people. They spit on Christians. If you try to evangelize to anybody, they will they will spit on you. They will drive you out, especially in the old city. You know, anywhere near the temple or you know the Dome of the Rock or anything like that, they will uh, they will very much drive you away. And of course, even in Israel, we've talked about it before. It's illegal to proselytize to minors. And it's so funny that there was a video of you know these this bunch of Hasidic children spitting on and chasing and hitting you know these ladies that I guess were trying to preach the gospel to them. I think they were Protestants, and Christians were rightfully getting outraged in America, conservatives. And the response was, um, actually, it's illegal what they're doing. So you really, and like, I responded, I was like, as if that, that somehow makes it better. Let's somehow, ah, religious persecution happening. Oh, don't worry. Actually, proselytizing that religion is against the law. So therefore, it's okay. What? Like, what's the, just the, I guess, you, the chutzpah, as you might say. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the majority of these conversations, they do stand, stand to like, kind of, we do discuss legality quite a lot. And not all laws, of course, are made in the right in the right spirit, so to speak. So I do have to side with the Protestants here. I think they're definitely in the right. And uh, whatever abuse is ongoing over there, it does need to be put to an end because, look, we may be next in line, frankly. Like, you know, it's kind of like they came for them first. And now, I mean, we've already seen abuse, of course, towards you know Orthodox Christians in those particular areas. So it's not like it's unprecedented, but definitely pretty staggering footage. Or the Orthodox gets some of the worst abuse because we're some of the most visible, even more than the Catholics, we still have more of our not to be simplistic, full regalia, you know, we have more of that going on than even a lot of the other the other groups. You've seen, you know, Catholic nuns have been spat on, the doors of Orthodox churches are spat on. We saw, you know, Zionist extremists attacking priests during the liturgy at 
the tomb of the Theotokos. At, in Bethlehem, they do this as well, at the place of the birth of Christ. I mean, this is, I think the main takeaway is that if we lived in a Christian country, if we lived in a country, even if it was controlled by just white Anglo-Saxon Protestants like it was in the past, we would hear about this. The institutions that cover the news, that proliferate information, would talk about this, but no. We live in a country and we live in a society and a civilization in the West where any kind of relevant cultural conversation about anything controversial is entirely controlled by them boys. So that's 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 why I take shows like this to kind of connect the dots every week. You know, we, we bring you a sort of little bit, throughout all of it, we always bring you that little bit of a report on, you know, what they're up to and what is going on in the Holy Land and how are our people doing in the Holy Land because we know the Antichrist may rule from there, but we also know that there will always be a remnant. There will always be true believers, even in, you know, the city of Jerusalem at the time of Antichrist. So it's always something important to the Christian heart. But with all of that, unless you have any final comments, Dimitri, I think it's about time to wrap it up. This has been a great episode. No, yeah. Um, thank you for speaking about such relevant subjects. I think definitely like the listeners will appreciate the fact that, look, everything really does come together in a really nice mosaic, you can say, like an artwork of sorts. And it's just paying attention to various details across across the, you can say, the years, the various books you read, but also just in the news. I think it's really important that you know, people keep stay vigilant, keep following. And of course, as we say, uh, you know, always put the information you receive through certain filters, which will keep it, you know, more or less, uh, you know, coming to you in a pure, in a pure form without any, any of the extra baggage, which, you know, some of these uh, mainstream media websites could, of course, provide. And with all that being said, you know, worldwarnow.substack.com, that's where you find everything, our articles. If you subscribe, you know, go paid, get behind the Ether Hour paywall. You get every episode of Ether Hour. We had a fantastic episode this week about Cornelia Zelea Cordrianu with our fantastic friend Mom Chaloneveski. I think it's one of our best episodes, Dimitri. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think I'd recommend everybody go have a ch- check it out. Definitely. One of the one of the most unique takes in the English language, I think nothing else really is available of that sort. So definitely, um, I recommend everybody check it out. The link will be provided in the description. So definitely hit that. Uh, try the trial version. It's all it's really, 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 really worth it, I think. And big thank you to Montreal, frankly, doing all the research, I would say, for a historian to actually look to look into such a such a broad subject. It definitely goes a long way. And so kudos to him. I definitely recommend uh, any of his works and whatever he publishes on the subject and that'll be linked below of course we want everybody to listen to it there's a free preview of course on youtube but with all of that you know world war now underscore on twitter world war now telly on telegram i'm on twitter at gnome rad dimitri is on twitter at ocanonist follow us on rumble world war now subscribe to the youtube channel we're getting close to 3,000 subscribers really want to get there leave us a comment leave us a comment on substack like the videos share the videos do all that good stuff and with all of that i think i'll leave you with that god bless